0: VinePair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter,
1: and I'm Joanna Sherino.
2: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal.
0: and this is the VinePair podcast. So before we uh, jump into today's topic, which I am really ready to get into, because uh, I just want to make some people feel really bad about themselves <laughs> and their uh <laughs> oh, the beliefs they put on others. Uh, Hopefully not Joanna and me. No, I don't think I will. I think I think you're going to agree with me. Uh, I would like to hear what you both have been drinking first. So Zach, what what about you? Uh,
2: good question. Um, you know had a really nice set of bottles including one that actually weirdly fits into a part of the today's conversation, although I'll, I won't spoil it but uh, had some friends over on, over the weekend for just to hang out, have some wine, etc. Um, and I think probably the highlight for me was a bottle of Pinot Noir from Penrash down in the Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, a bottle that actually had Purchased many years ago at the winery uh, on a trip with uh, with my dad, which is pretty cool. So opened that; it was uh, drinking quite nicely at twenty ten, kind of at the tail end of when I like to drink most of my Pinot Noir, but uh, very nice as well, uh, indeed there. Um, and you know, had another Bloody Mary, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago. But kind nice. of on a back on a Bloody Mary thing lately. Uh, just you know, it's a, for me, it's like one of those drinks that. When I'm out for brunch, which has happened a couple of times recently, I just gravitate towards it because it's one of the few cocktails that I like that I almost never will make at home because Caitlin doesn't like them. And I mean, I guess theoretically we could at some point have a gathering of people for brunch and I could make a like a pitcher of Bloody Marys. But it's like just like it's like the worst drink to make for yourself. It's so much work. Or you're, you're getting a kid or something, or mix, and oh, it's fine. Mixes can be okay. But, like, yeah, just was nice, kind of like, hey, yeah, I'm just going to have someone bring this to me in a glass, and I'm going to drink it. So that was my that was my drinking experience. How about you guys? Nice. Joanna.
1: Well, Adam and I did a lot of our drinking together this past weekend, we and I definitely drank too much. <laughs> um, some highlights, <laughs> though. <laughs> had a lot of classic cocktails this weekend yeah. that I either haven't had before or had um, had again. A painkiller was given to me, which was very delicious. It was given to me. (laughs) It was given to me at a tailgate, of course. Um, I had a clover club for the first time. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'd get it again. It's not my favorite Not my favorite. I I honestly don't love the egg white drinks too much. Yeah,
0: I don't love them. There's a weird aroma.
1: Yeah. Not Um, for me. We had Queen's Park Swizzles.
0: What up, Emily?
1: <laughs> the, that's a very good drink. You don't yeah. see it a lot. Um, I've had it before, once a long time ago. Um, that was really good. I had a meh espresso martini and yeah. also got made fun of for ordering it. We Thank did you, make fun Adam. Of you. You're welcome. Um, and I had a blueberry gimlet. That was okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then we had lots of great wine. Lots of great wine. You could talk about that and more.
0: We had some Pierre Peter champagne. Yes. Uh... We had some Jacasson champagne. We uh, we had some Chateau Montelena Chardonnay uh, and that some and Cabernet. That's very good. Speaking of people that maybe we talked about on the podcast last week, <laughs> um, and then yeah, I also um, had a Bell's Two Hearted Ale. Oh yeah, which. Uh, well, was, we, were oh, sorry, we were in Michigan. We were in Michigan at the University of Michigan. and But the thing that was- the, No, the,
1: you had Lighthearted.
0: Uh, no, we had the two-part of the night we got in. Remember, yes. we had it just like as right. a cheers before we sort of got ready for the shoot. Yeah. But then, yeah, at the tailgate, someone handed me a cup of Lighthearted Ale, and I right. tried it. And I was like, this is probably the most full-flavored light, light beer I've ever had. And it was 3.7% alcohol. And I was like, I, I kind of don't understand that. I've never had- a low alcohol IPA that's tasted that much like IPA before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually very impressed. Uh, so good on y'all, bells. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought a uh, all in all really good experience in uh, in Ann Arbor. You know, great places to go and have some drinks. L- lots of places that had like bourbon selections with extensive barrel pick
1: programs. Oh yeah, wait, what did you have that first night?
0: Uh, we had a. A Weller,
1: a Weller, right?
0: Barrel pick that the bar had, you know, obviously on the list, and it was only fourteen dollars for, for, for a two ounces. ounce pour. Yeah, which again, like that, you would never find that in New York at this point for Weller. Yeah, so that's why we tried it, and then at, at the bar the last night, Aaron got the what was it? Again? I can't even remember I can't now. Remember I wanted to say old granddad, but it was <laughs> oh no, it was no, it was an old forester barrel pick right. that he was like really interested in. That again was one of these like you don't as he was explaining as the whiskey as the, as the much more educated burden person than me. You just can't find a barrel pick like that for what it was on their list. I think it was like ten or eleven dollars. Yeah, I'm talking about it being in New York like twenty five or thirty. So again, really interesting. Um, so today's topic comes out of an experience i had this summer uh while traveling abroad in greece and um as everyone here on the podcast knows i'm a huge fan of greek wines i think that there's a lot of really amazing wines that are coming out of greece and while i did not do a lot of wine visits while i was there it was mostly like just vacation Mm -hmm. there were a few that we did and at at one of the visits um not to give these people away because they're amazing uh and i and I don't want to tell a story that maybe I'm not allowed <laughs> to be telling. They told me a story about how – so they're one of Greece's most celebrated wineries in the country. Like everyone knows who they are. They have, they're have they on the list of the best restaurants in Athens. Um, they're they're a wonderful winery, okay. and they make really incredible wines. But they make their wines with grapes that have been grown in their vineyards for the last 40, 50-plus years that are Syrah, you know – Roussanne, like uh, tons of other varietals that you might say are from France, right? But they've been in their vineyards for 50 plus years. Okay. So um, they told me out of the story where they came here on a trip to New York and they were at a very uh, well known restaurant with a psalm who some might consider a famous psalm. I would consider him a bro psalm, but uh, a psalm nonetheless. Who they were chatting with, and they asked if he knew their wines, and he said, I know your wines, but they're not indigenous, so I won't pour them here. Okay. And these are Greeks who, you know, to them, it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, these are wines that have been in our family, you know, grapes and vineyards that have been in our family for generations. The grapes are what they are. What do you mean they're not indigenous?
1: It's like weird wine discrimination.
0: Yes. And... I was appalled by the story, but I wasn't surprised. And so what I wanted to talk about today is this bias that the, especially American, but I think also Western European wine market puts on, it's not fair for me to call Greece a developing wine country because it's not. It's been making wine since basically the beginning, but puts on these countries that are not as established as... The United, basically, the big four, the United States, France, Spain, and Italy, and says to these countries, if you aren't making wine with grapes that are indigenous, I don't think those those wines are valid or legitimate, and I will not buy them or pour them. And I think it's such fucking horseshit. I
1: don't get it.
0: And you don't go to Florida... And ask them where the, if the oranges are indigenous and whether or not you will eat them. You <laughs> don't, if if you believe, if you believe this belief that it must be indigenous, then you better not fucking eat pasta in Italy because the pasta is not indigenous and the tomatoes came from Ohio. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's such a bullshit thing. And like, I don't know why wine always does this.
1: Is this pervasive? Like, so Zach, okay. please,
0: <laughs> is this pervasive?
1: Take it away, Zach.
2: Well, to answer the question first, I think it is, it is fairly pervasive, and I want to kind of offer just a touch of context. I, I think that the the sort of tenor of this conversation is largely correct, but I want to just add a piece here, which is that f- what we are looking at in a lot of these cases is w- wine regions and countries that had less market presence in yeah. Western Europe and, and the United States being kind of whipsawed between a couple of different imperatives and what you saw in a lot of these countries, and I think Greece is a really good example of this, is as those countries were first really trying to enter the global wine market in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, what the market was asking of them was make wines that are familiar to us, right? We yeah. don't want to learn what the hell, you know, how to pronounce Xenomavro or, um, you know, malagusia or whatever. Just yeah. plant Chardonnay and Cabernet and grow that and, you know, make it in a certain style, get points. That was the model that had been used by a lot of other wine regions, not so much in other countries, but you saw this, this was how, you know, wine regions in France and Spain and Italy that were not highly well known in that time period got on the map, right? They, they, they grew, in many cases, we're already growing these varieties. It's not as if they planted them specifically for this purpose, but it was a recognizable set of varieties, a recognizable style and a recognizable kind of format, I guess, that scored really well and got a lot of attention. So you have this whole imperative, and, and as is always the case with these things, because vines take a long time to reach maturity, and no one can pivot their production and their approach overnight, you have this like kind of long tail of this move in a lot of cases to either plant or accentuate and emphasize the international varieties that were already in your vineyards. And then in the later part of the 2000s and onward, you have this this sort of backlash against that. That's like, we don't want to drink Chardonnay from anywhere, but we certainly don't want to drink it from someplace that has other varieties that it could grow. We want to drink the stuff that's weird, the stuff that's different, the stuff that we don't already know. And that element, I think when expressed correctly, there is some value to that, I do think. I think what's cool about a place like Greece is because of Greece's very long viticultural tradition, I mean, thousands upon thousands of years, it has a set of indigenous varieties that are not largely grown elsewhere, that are a place where you have to go to Greece to get. I mean, you don't literally have to go to the country in most cases, but you have to buy Greek wine to get those flavors, those expressions. And where it becomes challenging to me is when, when any... When you're talking about this set of international varieties that are grown in many many countries and regions, there is a sort of element of weighing different th- priorities against one another, and it may be the case that the this sommelier that you're describing was obviously very rude and like could have perhaps framed things very differently. But I do think there is some kernel of truth to the notion that. If you have a consumer who is interested in Greek wine in 2023 in the United States, the odds are they are more interested in a Greek variety that is, you know, largely or exclusively grown in Greece than they are in an international variety grown in Greece. That doesn't mean that they won't enjoy that wine and they might very much like it. And if it can, you know, offer exceptional quality and value and things like that, there's always a place for those wines and in any market in any program. But There is something to the idea that what a lot of the modern current wine culture has tried to do is like, say, please don't rip out your indigenous varieties. We want to drink them. We want this thing that can only come from here, as opposed to Merlot, which is grown a lot of places.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think... A lot of us travel that way, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us seek things out because they're local to wherever we're going or like, yeah, like Zach is saying, like if you want to get to know Greek wine, it makes sense to try indigenous varieties. Um, Yeah, but it just seems like the way that it's communicated, it seems like the the motives there are different. We're different.
0: I, I just, I think that there is, it's not so black and white. And I think that there are, Lots of places, it, there are lots of wineries around the world that have figured out how to make really beautiful wines because the, those grapes have now been in the, you know, those vines have been in the ground for 60, 70 years yeah. with varieties that we may now think are not indigenous but to them are
1: are right right well that feels very different from like you're growing them and making wine with the grapes grown in a specific place versus sourcing the juice from different places and and then calling it Greek
0: and that's bigger that's the bigger issue I have right like I guess my issue is it comes across as you are telling someone this is not a legitimate wine in their country when in their local area, these wines are celebrated. They're considered the best, you know, one of the best wines in the region. And we see this in Italy, right? No one no one questions Super Tuscans. Mm, they right? used to. We, but now and we some, don't. some
2: people's. well, I actually think the Super Tuscans are a really instructive example because I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, maybe they're more kind of a certain kind of sommelier and wine pro who sort of intentionally do not engage with Super Tuscans. That's not a category that they find appealing. Now, I think that's even sillier in certain cases because – the varieties that are used there, Cabernet, Merlot, etc have in many cases been grown in that part of Italy for over 100 years, yeah. over 200 years in some cases, because all of this shit makes zero sense when you go back far enough in time. Like, grapes moved all over the place. Totally. You know, wherever they happened to first – the mutation first happened to arise, if it was good, what do you think fucking happened? People cut – you know, to cuttings. They planted it wherever the fuck they could because people wanted to drink good wine. And there was none of this, like, being like, well, I don't know. Like, this region has – its own indigenous varieties and yeah, they suck, but like we shouldn't, I mean, that just is not a mindset that ever existed before recently. Yeah. And I think we have swung too far and in, in some cases in that direction, but, but I do think there are people who definitely are influential people in wine who look at things like super Tuscans and say like, ah, it's not that that's not real Italian wine. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't think they're right, but they exist for yeah,
0: sure. I, I completely agree with you. They exist. I mean, I think the problem is I think you could do this with so many different Areas Right. You could look at Napa and say, okay, like, what is the legitimate wines of Napa? Is it Cabernet or was it whatever was grown there before that? Right. Is if you if you look like prior to prohibition, the wines that were grown were like people they were growing Riesling and like they were playing around with lots of German varieties. A lot of the people who were making wine in uh, Napa at the time were German. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah.
2: Italian varieties. And there was tons of
0: Italian like so then you could argue that again to take to go back to last episode that like what Dan is doing in Massacad is actually bringing back the indigenous varieties, right? right? Because he's now making whites with Italian varieties that maybe were there prior to everyone ripping it all out to make a shit ton of money on Cabin and Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. So like I I think that it's it's just it's this weird thing where, you know, we tend to do this especially to regions that are always developing. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily just look and say, like, is the wine good and how is this viewed, etc. And, you know, I think ultimately, yes, people want to drink indigenous varieties. But I think what, you know, if you're talking about the person who has that wanderlust, right. But I think they want to drink wines that they are told are the wines that people drink in the place that they want to feel like they have been to. Right. So, you know, they it's it's sort of both things. Right. It's like. Yeah, everyone drinks Aperol spritzes, but if you're told that that's what they drink in Venice and you want to also drink an Aperol spritz, even if maybe it's not from Venice, right? It's from some other part of Italy, although I think it is from Venice. Um, but the same idea here, right? Like you, if everyone in this small island of Greece grows Sauvignon Blanc and that's what they drink because that's what they drank for the last six or 70 years – then isn't that sort of like – that is the white wine – yeah, that is the white wine of that island.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems like you're definitely doing a disservice to the consumer by not having like that type of wine on your list or not having both, right? Why can't you have both? And I think like for somebody who is who is you know just learning about or wanting to try a certain type of wine, great, you have it on your list. But then for somebody like yourself who loves wine and loves great wine, like by not having – that greek wine on your list like you would never get exposed to that or get to try it unless you were there
0: yeah i I think it just it leaves us it causes us to basically like put very i guess very tight restrictions on certain regions and countries that means that their sections on wine lists will always be very small yeah and that for me is a missed opportunity because a lot of these wineries create really beautiful wines and as Zach also said, at often way more affordable price points. Yeah. And as we continue to sit here and complain about how, you know, like no one can afford Burgundy anymore, no one can afford a lot of Bordeaux, etc. like Napa Cab, here are people that are making wines that are really, really beautiful that you might be able to afford if they were just put on the list. Yeah. But they're not because of lots of other reasons, whether they be groupthink politics whatever it's
1: also just kind of a little ridiculous because then it's like they can't experiment they can't do anything differently they only have like a few things that they're allowed to do yeah if they want to be you know distributed across the world
0: and I do think the argument with food is interesting that we really don't do this in produce we don't oh my so- god
1: no not and, at all. and at the end of the day
0: I think for a lot of these farmers this is produce what's like what's the problem here you know if, if we figured out how to really make the most high-quality version of this grape possible, then why can't we make a wine from it that you find amazing in the same way that, you know, peaches are originally from China. Yeah. And South Carolina and Georgia figured out how to grow really great peaches. California never really did. But, I mean, that's just my own personal hot take.
1: nobody things of california for their peaches no
0: but they're all over the grocery store and i was like get these out of here <laughs> like i saw sam sifton <laughs> write an article in the times it was like i never have a good peach i'm like it's because you probably buy california peaches bro did you
1: only want indigenous peaches when you were in california i mean come on
0: <laughs> i'd like them to ship them from south carolina but anyways i'm just <laughs> saying that you know like nothing is truly as zach said is truly indigenous so just to me it feels like you know Again, I think this is more a product of of the wine professional than the overall sort of thing that the trend that's happening, right? But what that wine professional probably should says, "Let me try your wine," and then if yeah. they don't if they don't pick up the wine, fine. But to just say you don't make indigenous wines, I'm not interested. I think is a disservice to people who potentially may have made really incredible wine.
1: Yeah,
2: I want to make two quick points here. One is I am going to. So I think that there's a a piece of this that is is important to keep in mind, which is that when you're talking about the wine list at a restaurant in particular, but even to some extent the selections at a bottle shop or whatever, some of what people who come in and are looking for wines from uh, you know, from international markets, what they're looking for is either something that's going to resonate with them from a previous trip or something that's going to feel transportive. Mm-hmm. And there is some notion to the idea that if you say to someone, you know, here I have a bottle of uh, Assyrtiko from Santorini, that's going to feel more like they're taking a trip to Greece than I have a bottle of uh, Sauvignon Blanc from Samos. Now, it doesn't say one is better than the other or one is more valid than the other, but you do have to kind of... I think we all have to accept that this isn't just a sommelier and wine professional creation. There is some market piece to this. Because people... People do look at a country like in the same way that, you know, you might tell me, Adam, you might tell our listeners that the single best hamburger you ever had in your life was in Athens, but people are going to Athens and they're going to want Greek food because that's yeah. just how people are, right? And the the restaurants that serve other kinds of cuisine in those cities are for people who live there more than they are for tourists. And to some extent, the wines that you're describing are for Greeks. They're not for Americans in the same way. That doesn't mean they're not great, but it is there is some there is some undeniable truth to the fact that when people are looking for food drink etc from a country that's not their own they probably want it to be conformed to some extent to their own preconceived ideas accurate or not as opposed to well this is what people in athens eat on a daily basis or i mean sorry not this is not what people eat in a, in athens on a daily basis but this is the best you know turkish restaurant in Ath- in greece like okay but someone well, might not want that turkish there,
0: food though. is greek food but anyway yeah I know, I know, they I know. stole <laughs> it sure
2: um, yeah, don't get started about the the who who owns the rights to various middle, uh, Mediterranean <laughs> foods. You mean you mean, you mean Greek coffee? We will get canceled by everyone. All of us. <laughs> in any case, the the other piece of this I want to make though is that on the flip side, there is an undeniable element of this that is just insufferability from wine pros. And my example for this is actually Burgundy and it's Aligoté. And I don't know if either of you have been subjected to this in your experience recently. But I have had an annoyingly high number of wine professionals try to convince me that actually the greatest white wine in Burgundy is Aligoté. I'm watching
0: it happen right now on Instagram between a bunch of songs. Oh, and really? People who are like doing deep dives into Aligoté, yep.
2: And I'm here to tell you that there's a fucking reason why they ripped the Aligoté out. It's, it's because Chardonnay is just a better variety in the wines that are made from Chardonnay in in Burgundy are so much better than any Aligoté I've ever had. And I've had a lot of them because I keep getting them pushed on me.
0: Yeah. It's, it, it's <laughs> actually really funny that that's happening in Seattle and here. I mean, look, we always talk about these two markets being very similar, yeah. Mm-hmm. And but like, that's hilarious. Zach, Cause yeah, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of people post about it.
2: And it's just, it's to me, it's like, it's a little bit of like, it's this, like, I get it. Aligoté is both still more affordable than, than white Burgundy. And, less discovered in a broader sense than white burgundy but like get the fuck over yourselves people like it it's is not, not gonna the happen. same it's not gonna it, well happen. it's just it's but those people but that kind of person is not even interested in it happening in like a big way they don't want anyone to buy this they want to be the cool kid forever with like their thing that they think is great and that they Sherry. can continue to buy for the same price and yeah. so it's like it is just a so there is some element of like you know i mean. God, I have one last piece to say to this. I'm sorry. I think there's also an element from from Psalms in particular that I think of as like sort of like flashcard myopia where it's like, well, the grapes I learned about when I was studying Greece for an exam were these. And so these are the only grapes that exist in Greece or are the only ones I want to interact with. Mm-hmm. And it's like, come on. Like, what a ass backwards way of thinking about yep. the world of wine. Like, if it's not on the test, it doesn't exist is like that shit's dumb when it comes to drinking wine and it's like a million times dumber when it comes to like studying wine. So th- I think there's all these things feed into one another and, and reinforce slash amplify some of the negative traits that we're describing in wine, where it's like there is a kind of condescension and or pigeonholing of regions, countries, et cetera. But, but I do want to just reinforce that I, there is some element of this is being driven by broader forces by no, I agree with that. And that, that is also true.
0: I agree with that. I do. I do think that, there's a lot of consumers that just want to have Zinomavro from Greece. I mean, look, even for myself, like the, that's the grape that I sure. discovered that I really love from Greece when it comes to reds. And like when I was in Greece, if I was going to drink a red, I was looking for that. Even when I was in parts of Greece that don't have a lot of Xenomavro. I was like, well, I don't really not as much as that red because I know it's not going to be something that I'm going to like. You know, like that's just what people do. Mm-hmm. So that is true, right? Consumers are going to have the preferences that they're going to have regardless. Um, but it is interesting that like. You know, then we sort of layer in all the sort of wine snobbery bullshit on top yeah, of that the and then it's snobbery. just yep. insufferable well interesting conversation let us know what you think hit us up at podcast at and send thanks us thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast the flagship and podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast network if you it's love listening to this now. show Sounds or even great. if you don't but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vinepair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vinepair Podcast Network.